Listen, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to John chapter 10. If you're visiting with us this morning, or this is your first time, or if you've never filled this out, or if you have some kind of a communication that you'd like to share with the pastors or elders or leadership here at Neighborhood, this communication card should be somewhere in the vicinity of the chair in front of you. And we'd love to just to get to know you a little bit. And one of the ways we can do that is just by you filling this out. I'm going to be putting this in the bulletin in the weeks to come, but um, we really want to know as a church body, I'm going to put in the bulletin, reasons why you should call the church. Um, we'd really love to know when you're going into the hospital. We'd really love to know when a major event is happening, like a graduation or a wedding. Um, we'd really love to know when there's items to be prayed for. Um, and, and that's just one of the ways that, that God unites us, is to, is to communicate that. I'd like us to use this card and just get in the habit of jotting a note to the staff, jotting a note. And we, we pray over these. Um, don't, don't feel like it needs to be a massive bomb going off before you fill this out. Let's use this just as, as a communication tool. Uh, John chapter 10. For those of you who were here last week, you remember that we broke into some groups and we looked at this, this picture of Jesus talking about himself being a gate and then switching metaphors a little bit and calling himself a shepherd. And um, I just loved it. I, I know that's a little awkward for people in church to have to be required to, to, to do things sometimes. I get that. But I love the insight that these different groups, there were just four groups, and the insights that you had, and that's the Spirit of God just illuminating and, and saying this is what this text is talking about. Now, we didn't have time to just dive into it and, and really get into it, but I decided to split it into two parts because it's, it warrants it. I hope you're gathering this, that the, that the pace we're going through the Gospel of John is really fast. Uh, we're not flying like at 10,000 feet where we're just covering it in a couple of weeks, like some overview of the Gospel of John. But neither are we you know, treading on the ground and really kind of walking through it. Instead, we're kind of flying, I don't know, I'm not a pilot, but maybe a couple thousand feet. We're kind of, we're kind of you know, having to focus in on just a couple of parts. My prayer is this, that as we read the Gospel of John, as Jesus is revealing who he is through the Gospel of John, that it would actually whet our appetites and that personally we would go back and say, gosh, we barely touched on that or that opens this whole can of worms or what about all these questions I have with regard to that? And I hope that would, that would lead to further study on your own. Certainly that's what community groups are all about is just being able to, to gather around and take what we try to cover in 40 minutes and begin to unpack it some more and begin to have some pushback and talk back and dialogue. And I hope you're always returning to the text. That's our... That's our, our prayer. Well, John chapter 10, uh, for those of you who maybe weren't here last week, uh, Jesus is, is speaking a lot in this chapter, and, and we're just going to cover the first half of the chapter for round two here as we go. If you have your uh, bulletins this morning, you saw that um, our title was Jesus is Still My Shepherd, because he was the shepherd last week, and, um, and since we're just continuing it, uh, praise God, he's not just our shepherd one week at a time. He's, he's still our shepherd. He perseveres. And that's a really good thing. We talked early on about the fact that Jesus, you know, sometimes we, we do this too. We talk and there are barriers to communication. There are barriers sometimes to, as I'm speaking right now, if your child is misbehaving to your right or left, 
there's a barrier to hearing what I'm saying right now because you're not focused on what I'm saying. You're focused over here. Even though you might be looking at me, there's some barrier there. And as Jesus is speaking all through the Gospel of John, we see some different barriers. Some people really get it. Some people are missing it completely. I love the disciples. I'm glad that often, we just read this morning as a family in Matthew, the disciples are like, explain the parable. We don't get it. And they just constantly would come back to Jesus and say, help us out here. We don't understand what you're talking about. And so, and so there's, this, there's this dialogue going on here, as, as we're going to see um, in verse 6. It says they did not understand what he was telling them. Um, let me just first, before we dive into the scripture that we're in today, let me just give a little bit of a reminder. Some of this came out in our groups and some of this came out last week. But with regard to, to sheep and shepherds, um, this is not an exhaustive study, but just beginning to look at the nature of sheep in, in the scriptures. Um, let me just warn you that it's not all good news when you're called a sheep. Okay, We think of a sheep, we go, cute. You know, lots of people come and you know, pet me at the zoo and feed me 25 cents at a time, you know, and we think it's a neat thing. It's really not all that flattering in some ways. So I'll just brace you for that, okay? Um, here are just some passages that, that um, talk about sheep. Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, Jesus talking, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 10, 16, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Matthew 12, 11. He said to them, if, if any of you has sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and be lifted out? Here's what I want to draw out with that. They didn't get shocked and go, huh, sheep falling into a pit? No, they realized sheep fall into pits because they're just not that smart sometimes. Matthew 18:12. what do you think of a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away? Again, just the nature of sheep. They fall into pits. Sheep wander off. Matthew 25, 32, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So we realize there's some distinction here to being called a sheep. John 10, 3, these are from our passages today. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. Next verse, John 10, 4. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. John 10, 8, all whoever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. So just a little bit of an overview of sheep. Let's talk about shepherds for a second and kind of just shift gears. In John 10, 2, he says, the man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. What he's drawing out here is that there are true shepherds, and as we're going to see in a minute, there are some false shepherds. So here's just some characteristics of a false shepherd. Matthew 7:15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. John 10:12. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep. And runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. And also from our passage today, John 10:13, the man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So Jesus is drawing a bit of a distinction here between hired hand, false prophet, false shepherds. Remember we talked last week about Ezekiel 34 and just 
This idea that God as shepherd came to be known as the leadership of the people of Israel. And there were some condemning woe to yous that went on to the bad shepherds. The bad shepherds are those who look out only for their own self. You see the danger coming? They bolt because they're in danger. They care nothing for the sheep. Here's what he talks about with regard to the true shepherd. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. That's Jesus just identifying himself as the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. John 10, 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10, 16, we're not going to dive into this, but there are some other sheep, he says, that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them in also. John 10, 26, but do you not... But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Jesus had no qualms whatsoever being very offensive by saying, you're in and you're out. We tend to dislike that these days. We feel like that's not very PC. John 21, 12, or John 10, 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now listen to John 21, 16. This is Jesus post-resurrection talking to to Simon. He says, and Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you really love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. He says it another way. He says, do you love me? He says, you know that I do. He says, feed my sheep. Just once again, implying that Jesus is the chief shepherd, but even as he departs, he left other shepherds. We talked, we took a little aside last week about eldering. And what it is to be an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd of Jesus Christ in the local church. Here again, it implies that sheep need care. Sheep need feeding on a regular basis. And finally, I just love this verse and this whole parable. Matthew 18, 13, it says, And if he finds it, this is the one who, who went after the lost sheep. It says, If he finds that sheep, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that didn't wander off. And in that, you just see the heart of a father who is thrilled with individual sheep. And there's this relationship there, and there's an intimacy there. Sheep and shepherds. Look at verse 1 with me. We're going to just kind of march through this, and um, I want to pull out just a couple of thoughts. One is just how does... Our chief shepherd, the good shepherd, how does he shepherd? We're going to see some of that in here this morning. And then the other two key ideas I want you to walk away with this morning is this key picture that he's saying, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's him dying. But he also takes it up again. That's him rising. And those are two, the gospel is found right here in in John chapter 10. We know it's found in John chapter 3, somewhere around verse 16. But we also, we just find the gospel, the good news, woven all through here. Uh, Verses 1 to 2, let me read it. I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Again, just distinguishing between authentic and false shepherds. If you go to the Middle East right now, and I haven't been over there recently. Actually, I've never been over there. um, But the Internet tells me. Um, that that these sheep pens are still used today. And uh, the whole idea is that there's this waist-high wall that basically keeps out predators. And so you you herd the sheep in there when you you need to rest and you can't keep an eye on them because you're awake. And so you herd them into this safe spot. And there's this small gateway or opening, and it's basically guarded by the shepherd. 
And the, the shepherd sits there and stands watch over and is going to care for that. Uh, I, just, I just thought about this. I, I do this every night. My routine is that I make sure I lock up our house. And, um, and sadly, that's just kind of the world we live in. But I, just, I make sure my house is locked up at night. And, um, and I just, my wife and I, before we go to bed, we go through and we just, we go make sure our kids, usually our kids have, you know, fallen out of bed or out of their covers or, you know, whatever. We just kind of straighten up things and, and it's just kind of that one final check, right, before you go to bed. And you just go, man, I've done everything I can. Really, it's in your hands, Lord. So you lay in bed and you pray for him. Here's the shepherd standing watch at the gate. I think about Jeff. And his new check-in process. It's not really Jeff. It's Jeff and Hannah and a team of people. But if there were a line of people waiting to get checked into our children's ministry, and you saw someone in front of you fidgeting and nervous and looking on ahead and seeing that there's a scanner and a check-in process, and, uh, and, and he's getting all nervous the closer he gets to the thing, and, and he, um, you know, he decides to kind of forego that process, and he goes wandering down the children's wing. Let me just give you freedom right now like they do at the airports. If you see something suspicious like that, don't just go, well, we're in church. I'm sure it's all okay. It may very well not be okay. That's problematic that he doesn't want to go through the check-in process, right? If someone wants to come and work with our children, we screen them. And we want to make sure, we want to do everything that we can to make sure we're putting in front of our kids and with our kids and around our kids those who are following Christ. And those who are safe people. It's not being wise as serpents, as Jesus commanded sheep to be, to just be gullible and let anyone in on through. So here it is with this. If there's someone sneaking in over the wall, pretty good chance he's not real, true. He's a false shepherd in some way, shape, or form. People try to do this in the church sometimes by circumventing leadership, by circumventing the the process that's been set up. There's a lot of people, for whatever reason, people want to teach in the church. And I remember as a youth pastor, I'd just have people come to me and say, I want to teach youth. I'm really good at teaching youth. And I'd say, I'm sure that you are. I'm sure you're amazingly skilled at, at, at teaching youth. But what we really need are servants. And so come an hour early with me on Sunday and set up chairs with me. Guess how many came back to set up chairs? Probably one in 20. Haven't done a ratio check lately, but that's roughly what it is. Honestly, I don't want someone up in front teaching our youth who want to just be there to teach and share and promote and, and speculate and whatever else. Just a tiny litmus test would say, come an hour early and serve. If you love the sheep, if you care for the sheep, if you're really here to serve God, it really won't matter what role you play. And some people came and just proved themselves. They just served. Hey, is there anything else I can do? I, want, I have an hour afterwards. I budgeted an hour afterwards to help serve and tear down. Someone's got to do it. That's the person that I want to start being around and saying, you know what? You have something that our kids desperately need. Let's talk about teaching now. So if they're legit, they're going to come in the proper way. Verses 3 to 5, let me read on. Verse 3 says this, The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Again, just a fascinating picture that Middle Eastern shepherds, even by today's standards, are known for this intimacy with their sheep. 
and, and they, they have a little flute and they'll play this flute and their sheep out of all the sheep will know that flute and come follow after them. And there's this fascinating picture where if we lived in that culture, we would go, yeah, this is totally true. Here we have to reach out and kind of go find it elsewhere because and, and, we're not living in this, in this context. They quickly come to know who that person is. And if you and I were to simply walk up to the sheep and go, here, sheep, sheep, you know, or whatever, they wouldn't come from us. In fact, they'd probably be skittish and kind of pull away from that. This question came out um, in our community group questions, but also in the groups that were formed. It begs this kind of a question. Who's, whose voice are you following? Whose voice do you know? Who, who's, whose tune is your ear in tune with? And you just go, man, I'm listening for that. I'm ready at a moment's notice to follow that. And do you know the shepherd's voice? Can you tell when the Holy Spirit is prompting you this way or that way to speak or to just stop speaking? And that's, the, that's the, one of the questions that just comes to mind with this. In verse 6, it says this, that Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Remember that we're talking here about a context where people knew shepherds and sheep and that this wasn't some kind of an intellectual inability to understand. If I were to say right now in this context, Jesus said, I am the good CEO, we would all be able to gather that and make connections to that. We'd all be able to relate and and figure that one out. So if, if there was a lack of understanding, it's not an intellectual cognitive lack of understanding, but a spiritual barrier here. And there are spiritual barriers to this. There's either a sense that I don't like what you're telling me because by you saying that, you're comparing yourself to God. And I'm already starting with the premise, I know you're not that, and so that just infuriates me, and so I can't understand it. Or people just being blinded by their own sin and being blinded by this world and not being able to recognize or discern spiritual truth. I want you to open your Bible for a moment to Psalm 23. And we touched on this last week. I hope some of you took me up on the challenge to just read Psalm 23. And to think about people who have read this psalm for generations. And then along comes Jesus and says, I am the shepherd. I'm the shepherd from from this psalm. Here's what it says. The Lord, now insert Jesus, a face a person standing there in front of you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is Jesus identifying himself as that good shepherd. And that's who he is today. I want to ask this question. How how does our shepherd shepherd? There's a couple different things that we could pull to. And as you read through the scriptures and you're you're seeking to discern the leadership of Christ, you're seeking to be under his care. 
There's a God part to this, and there's our part to this. Our Friday morning's men's group is just ripping this open in a book called The Practice of Godliness. And it's just looking at this, these two seemingly incompatible truths that you and I are to strive with everything we are to work out our salvation. And yet it's God that's at work in us. God saying in, in, uh, in Peter saying that I've given you all that you need. Therefore, make every effort to add to your faith. And then these different things, two seemingly incompatible things. We're totally responsible and yet we're totally dependent. And I've just given you 30 seconds. We're wrestling through this week after week and trying to just go, God, we, we want to pursue this. That as you seek to follow the shepherd, it's good to see just what kind of a shepherd he is. First of all, Jesus, as you look at him and as you think of him, we've been in, in John now for weeks. And as you look at Jesus, he's the leader. He's the leader of the disciples. He's the leader, really, of all mankind. And here's some of the things that he did as a leader, some things that he's shown himself to be as a leader. Part of what a leader does is they just go first. That's a, that's a simple definition of leadership in some ways. They, they lead the way. And Jesus went first. He went first in life, in relationships. He went first in suffering. He went first in death. And now catch this. He went first in resurrection. He paved the way in all these different elements for us to follow in our footsteps. You want to know how to relate to people? Look at how Jesus relates to people and just mimic that. He did that as something to be followed. Not simply read about, not simply studied, not simply admired, but to be followed. And that's why it's so imperative not just to read your Bible, not just to attend church and listen, but to say, what does that look like for me, Lord, to be a doer of this? How do I flesh this out? Help me. I want to do this. Help me take the next step and and walk in your ways. The other way Jesus leads is by his spirit. Jesus is gone. Jesus is not physically present with us, but he left his spirit. And if you want to memorize any chapter in the Bible this coming year, I'd recommend Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at Romans chapter 8 for a little bit. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But I'm going to read some passages. Romans 8.26 says this. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Isn't that a great promise? You're weak. You cry out. You say, Spirit, I need your help right now. The passage goes on to say, we do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Many of you in this room, on any number of levels and directions in life, are asking God, God, what do you want me to do? And you have a sincere desire to follow God's will. I know because some of you have shared those with me. And I'm praying with you. And you're seeking, God, would you show us your will in this? We want to walk in your ways. But haven't you had those times when you're praying and you're, just, you're out of words? You don't even know what to say anymore. You're like, God, you already know all this anyways. And I hope you have a prayer life that's free enough to just say, Ah! You know, and you, you don't even know what to pray anymore. I think about this when, when I hear... My two-year-old, for instance, crying out from the bedroom. Ah, ah, mommy, mommy. You know, what I'm doing is I'm laying in bed going, yes, she's not asking for, no, I'm just kidding. 
You know how do you translate that? Is you translate that for I need help. I'm scared. I need comfort. Come to me. Lift me up. Meet a need. Mom doesn't sit in bed and go, you're not saying the right words. Use your words. She's two. She doesn't really have that many words, right? And so as a brand new believer, it's precious to hear brand new believers pray. It's precious before anyone feels like they need to add, you know, nine syllable words to their prayers. They just say what's on their heart to their Abba. And kids pray that same way. And here's a picture of just how Jesus leads us. He's given us his very spirit. He just says, man, there's going to be times when you don't even know how to pray. The spirit leads objectively through the written word of God. That's why reading God's word is really important. There's objective truth in there. It's square. It's yes, it's no. It's black, it's white. Read God's word. On On the way here to church this morning, two of my kids and I sat there and we just had a game of how many reasons we can come up with of why it is so important to memorize God's word. And it took us from my house to getting to church here. And by the way, we had fun with it. This isn't something like wacky pastor with the, you know, kids are like, oh. We just had a good time with it. And we're just talking about it. And they came up with great answers. They know this stuff. So there's the objectiveness of the Word of God. And that's why it's important. That's part of how God leads us. One of the answers that one of my kids came with was this. You know, we're supposed to meditate on God's Word all day and night. And we can't always be reading. My kids love to read. You can't always be reading. That means you must be able to have God's word in your heart so that you can think on it. Because if it's pitch black and you're laying awake at night, you can't be reading God's word right at that moment. There must be another way. What if you're camping and you don't have God's word? What if you're in a conversation and you don't have God's word? You want to whip out and look for it. So you, you better have it with you. And that's part of the subjective way that the Holy Spirit leads us. The Spirit... Uh, impresses certain scriptures on us at specific times, leading us in life. I love that. I love that there's an objective and a subjective there. Here's a second way that, that he shepherds us is that he's provider. He's not only our leader, he's our provider. You know that God provides the church. He provides family for us. And part of you being here is that I pray that every single week your faith is fanned into flame like never before. And that it happens not just from someone speaking up front or some new song that we learned. Great song, by the way, guys, that ministered to me. But just from the way that we interact with one another. I pray that we would grow as a body and just be able to, to come here, not even just with a consumer mindset of, God, I need, I need, I need, I need. But God, how are you going to use me today to fan into flame in someone else's faith this morning? And that's part of what uh, the, the provision is. He's also provider in terms of protection. Do you know that the promises of God should be just memorized and meditated and thought about often? Because there's so much provision in the promises of God. There's all kinds of protection promises. This idea of hemming us in, this idea of a sheep gate, the idea that Jesus is at the gate and at, and at watch and at guard. Who, who, who do I need to fear? He's there for me. He also guards our hearts and our minds through His peace, which is promised. That's why He tells us that we don't have to be anxious for anything. To know that our souls are protected for eternity, covered by the blood of Christ, and that we don't, we're not battling for our eternal destiny today. That's just a good thing to lay down and go, 
okay, that price has already been paid. He not only provides family protection, but also provision. I mentioned 2 Peter 1 already, where it says that we've been given all that we need for life and godliness. Every last thing you need to walk in righteousness, you already possess. Isn't that cool? It's that little baby who's born and you're holding in just the tiniest amount of flesh sitting here. And to realize that everything in that body, all the DNA right there is needed to grow that into a functioning human being. It's all right there. It's not developed yet, but it's all right there. And at the moment of regeneration, God says, I've just I've given you what you need. You have my spirit. Now go and learn to walk in righteousness. That's powerful to know that. Romans 8.31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Now watch the logic of this. He who did not spare his own son. Okay, giving your son, that's like maximum gift, right? That's huge. The logic is this. If he gave us this, let me read on. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God, my job is in danger. I don't know what to do. He who gave his own son, isn't he going to provide for you? God, my health isn't what it used to be. The doctors were wrong. He who gave his own son, won't he take care of that and care for you in that? God, my child is starting to pull away from me and relationally we're not where we were. I thought, I thought he loved you and I thought he had all kinds of things for you, but lately I'm just panicky and worried and the news doesn't help. He who didn't spare his own son, won't he guide you in that? Won't he enable you as a parent? Didn't he give you just the right child to be shepherding as well? The logic of 831 is just that, of course, of course, of course, he'll graciously give us all things. What a joy to walk through life and just look for the grace of God everywhere. A buddy of mine and I were talking this week, and he's serving in the church. He's giving tons of resource and time and energy to what's going on here at neighborhood. And we both agreed, isn't it a joy that the truth of giving your life away and finding it is true? And then in the very things that you're giving up and sacrificing and doing for the Lord, doesn't mean it's easy all the time, but that you actually, you actually receive when you do that. That's just God's grace. That's how big God's grace is. That even in coming and giving up and going, guess I'll give this up, and it gets pride out of your hands, you, you look back and you go, man, God's giving to me in return for that. Let me move on. He also gives security, cares for us, sacrifices for us. He reassures us. He's patient with us. And like that picture of the sheep, he's happy with us. That's a great image. That our shepherd's happy with us and enjoys being with us. Romans 8, 5 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger, or sword, you can fill this in, or job loss, or fear of the future, or a tanked economy, or a strained relationship. Verse 36 of that passage is, As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered, here it is, as sheep to be slaughtered. But know in all, thi- all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, 
Neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Isn't that awesome? You ought to just quote that and just meditate on that and linger on that truth. Let me just pull aside for a moment to the family shepherds. I recognize some in here. I come from a broken home, so I understand this. Uh, some of you in here are single moms raising kids. Many of you in this room are dads, and you're the family shepherd. And God's placed a unique burden on us as men as we lead in our home. And as the family shepherd, here's the little aside. This isn't what this passage is talking about, but you can infer it because we're to walk as Christ walked. Shepherd as Jesus shepherds. When you see Jesus shepherding us, his sheep, shepherd in those same kinds of ways. He knows that sheep fall into pits and he's gracious. In fact, he goes out hunting for them and looking for them. He knows that sheep wander off. In, the, in terms of leadership, I'd say dads, those of you leading in the home, go first, model it. Don't require something of your children. Don't try to get your kids to memorize scripture if you're not. Don't ask your kids to forgive and be gracious if you're not being forgiving and gracious. Don't ask kids to be uh, sacrificial with their money, time, effort if you're not being that. Go first. Model it. Lead them in that. Because you and I can't be everywhere with our kids, teach your daughters, teach your sons to rely on and to lean on the Spirit of Christ, which is always with us. He's always with us. You and I are figuring out we can't always be with our kids, can we? We can't bail them out. It's not how God intended it. So shift that trust from an early age. Point that out. And then in terms of provider, I would just say this. Take cues from Jesus to protect, provide, to guard, to reassure. Locking your doors at night is great, but how are you doing emotionally at protecting your kids? How about spiritually? Not just guarding them and building up walls and saying, man, we need, to, we need to get into the Christian suburb quick. Everyone in, air sirens. But instead, are you providing for them? If you're providing them the truth, if you're living out the truth and modeling it, they're going to see that and that's going to empower them. So provide the way Jesus provided. Think about this. Uh, many times in our life, God could stand back and say, you know what, the circumstances don't warrant that you need to be at all bummed out and sad right now, Trevor. The circumstances are that I can see all and you're going to be fine down the road here. I've totally got you in the middle of my hand. But you know what? God doesn't sit back with arms folded and just say, deal with it. You're fine in a stern voice. You know what he does? He gives passages like, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Let me spell it out for you. Neither things in heaven or things on earth, angels or demons. I mean, he just goes into great detail to comfort us. Many of the Psalms are just comfort Psalms that we can lean on, that are reassuring. Dads, do the same thing. What you're doing when you do that, when a child cries out, reaches up for a hand, 
And you come and provide. You come and shepherd. You come and nurture. You come and offer loving, caring, reassuring, gentle words. That begins to drive deep into that kid that there's a reliability in my dad, in my mom. And they begin to see that's God as they grow older. And you begin to tell them that. Ultimately, how Jesus shepherd, shepherds is really put on full display um, in that he lays down his life for the sheep. That's really the ultimate kind of snapshot. Let me just kind of wrap up our time here with two key theological ideas. Look at verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. I am the gate of the sheep for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That was our memory verse this week. I hope your family was talking about that verse and living that verse. When you spot something killing, stealing, destroying, you know that belongs to the thief. That's not what Jesus is all about. So in our homes, when you're doing that verbally to someone else, the reason we don't allow that is not just because it provides discord in the home, which it does. That's the work of the enemy in our home. That's not what we allow. That's not what Jesus meant by coming and having life to the full. Here's, here's the two key theological ideas that I want to throw out, and then we'll wrap up. Jesus is declaring himself supreme to every single other Savior that's out there. His language is offensively exclusive. Someone said over here about the gate. The gate is a, is, a, is a really exclusive kind of term. You're either in through that gate or you're not. And it's the gate. It's not the gates, plural. This would be offensive to those who would claim the idea that, you know what, it doesn't matter which path you're on, as long as it's kind of upward and good, it's going to get to the top of the mountain. As long as you're spiritual and seeking after God, whatever you may call God to be, then you're fine. You're on the right track. Many times through the Gospels, many times through the whole Bible, that's just blown out of the water and that doesn't fly. That doesn't stand. And Jesus is saying that's not the way it is. Later on, he's going to say no one comes to the Father. What? Except through me. That is still super offensive. Verses 10 to 11 say this. We just read 10. Let me read 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Basically, Jesus is stating plainly why he is here. And that is to rescue us from death, from death spiritually and eternally. The way he's doing this is by offering himself as a substitute for sins. People will constantly want to talk to you about all kinds of different aspects of Jesus' life. If Jesus is God this, if Jesus is God that, um, when Jesus fed uh, you know, the 5,000. How did that happen? Uh, you know, I mean, you can just go on and on with it. I would challenge you and encourage you as a believer. You ought to know how to give a defense for the gospel and what you believe in. Part of that's just your own faith and growing in that. But I'd also challenge you to keep bringing it back to Jesus and keep bringing it back to the, 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 the two key points of his life and ministry on earth. And that is his death on the cross and his resurrection. If you focus just on the death of Jesus, all that makes him out to be is another just tragic death of a person who died for what he believed in. The uniqueness of Jesus over every other Savior is that here in John 10, he's saying, I lay down my life. We'll read on here in a moment. 
only to take it up again. He rose from the dead. Therein lies the power. Therein lies the hope you and I have for resurrection. There, therein lies the hope that you and I have for real victory over sin and death today. Such that we don't have to fear death the same way that we did before we knew Jesus and we're safe in him. It's not just a past thing way back here that happened one time. And why do church folk always talk about something that happened so long ago? One of your questions this week as a community group is this. What's the past implication? What's the present implication of that? And what's the future implication of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's why we sang about at the cross. Enough. All these songs keep focusing back on that. Jesus' death was not something poetic and artsy the way that we sometimes culturally want to make it here. It was gruesome. It was humiliating. In that mode, it was very shameful. It was also the greatest crime in human history. I want you to think back for one moment of what you felt when you saw planes barreling into towers. A lot of emotions get stirred up when you see those images, and especially when it first happened. You were shocked at that. You were probably a little bit angered. Probably just a huge range of emotions. And I heard over and over during that season of time about the loss of innocent life. And that's what makes you so angry about it. They didn't deserve it. They were there at work. That was someone's dad. Well, now think about the death of Jesus. Truly innocent life that wasn't lost, but as John 10 says, given laid down, handed over to creation to say here is payment. This is all part of God's plan. Don't turn there, but you can write this down. Acts 2.23, this is from a sermon. But he says that this man was handed over to you, catch this, by God's set purpose. It wasn't an accident. By God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, Put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Jesus wasn't Jesus' life wasn't taken from him, but it was given by him. Again, John ten eleven, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Read with me in verse fourteen. I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. His resurrection. Again, I said this before, but his death would be a mere tragedy of a good teacher if not for the resurrection. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. 
If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I want you to know you can have confidence as you talk about resurrection from the dead in your cubicle, which on one hand sounds ludicrous. You're walking out of class and someone says, you're a Christian, right? Yes. So you really believe people rise from the dead? Yes. How come? How can you believe that? Have you ever seen that? You better be ready to have an answer for that. Because that sounds kind of ludicrous to most people. If that's not true, though, the Bible makes it clear. We're to be pitied in here in this room. We're wasting our time. We're still in our sins. We're going after a false shepherd, a false savior, a false hope. I love how he ends that. But Christ did indeed rise from the dead. And therein lies the power of new life. From day one, skeptics have denied the plausibility of this. But we're not going to go into this. We have Easter to to do that. But... um, But the historical evidence of this is overwhelming. I would just challenge you. I would invite you. Please go start doing some research on your own for this. It will grow your faith. And it will give you some answers of how to answer people who are skeptical. Here are just a couple. Many separate accounts of the post-resurrection appearance of of post-resurrection appearances. And these include non-biblical. It's to crowds of people. Here's another thing. The empty tomb. Had this whole thing been a ruse... It would have just been shut down by producing a corpse. Here's the body of Jesus. We all saw him alive. Here's the body. It's over and done with. How about this? The utter transformation of the disciples. From being scared to death, uh, denying Christ to, to ordinary people, to the pillars of the church saying, we'll die for this thing. This is true. I've seen the risen Christ. And I would go on to point out um, every single martyr and changed life through the centuries lends validity to the truth of the resurrection. Not to mention, I once was blind, but now I see. What does this mean for us? John uh, 10.19 says this, At these words, all these things Jesus just said, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Remember that from John 9. It's no different in this room that the words being said are dividing. It's no different when you go to your next family function, to your job, whatever. Jesus divides. He always has and he always will. Someone said up here, it was brilliant. The gate is an obvious and simple solution. It's right there in front of us, but it must be chosen. My invitation to you would be this. Come into the sheepfold of God. Come be under the care and leadership and provision of the shepherd, Jesus. Questions I have for you. Have I trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to make me right? Or is there some other Savior that's crept in? And the way you can answer that is this. Yeah, but I've attended church for a really long time. My parents were really good people. I memorized a lot of verses in Iwana as a kid. I've got a huge, thick Bible with tons of cross-references and notes. But does that make you right with God? If there's anything added to that but falling on the grace of Christ and saying, but for the blood of Christ, 
then dive into that. Look at that. Here's another question for you. Do you know the good shepherd's voice? Am I one of his own who leads, who he leads and laid his life down for? I would say that these are the questions of life. The Bible makes it clear there's no other way to be saved. Let me invite the band up uh, right now and just say this, that responding to the call of Jesus on your life is both a one-time event, the first time you respond to that nudging, but it's also a lifetime event where every single day afterwards you choose to follow the voice of Jesus. Some of you may be in this room and say, man, I'm that sheep that's wandered off. I'm that sheep that's fallen into a pit. I can't rescue myself. I would just invite you right now to use this response time as we listen to music, as we are led in worship to respond to God.